Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Heavenly Father, you have given us all that we ever need. Not only did you create us, but you created us in your image. You created us as ones who seek to worship. As we gather together for corporate worship, we pray that you would encourage us in that. You would encourage us in, in being together and worshiping you and remembering who you are. And that in our lives as we go out from here, we would represent you where we live, work, study, and play. Father, you've called us not just to pray for ourselves and our body, but also to pray for others. And so now, Father, we lift up the leaders that we are under. This week, we think about world leaders, those across the globe who have any kind of authority over anything, whether it be a small country or a large nation. Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would draw them into your presence, that if they know you, that they would trust in you, they would lean on you, they would be in your word, and they would lead in such a way that brings you glory and honor and draws their people to you. And Father, if there are any leaders across the world who don't know you, we pray that the Spirit would be working in their hearts, that they would find the vanities and the joys of this world to be empty without you. And that you would bring someone into their lives who would show them your word, your covenant, your promises, your hope in your scriptures. And that you would draw them into your presence that they might trust in you. We thank you for those that you have put over us and pray for them. Father, we pray not only for leaders, but we pray for our missionaries who are across the world some in our backyard, some farther abroad. <clears throat> this week we pray for the Tunnell family. We thank you that you have called them back to Poland, that you have called them uh, to Cassia's birth nation. We pray that you would be with them as they finish up seminary, that you would not just impart knowledge, but passion for your word and for the people of Poland. And Father, we pray that you would be now preparing the soil with which they are going to plant. That as they go over to Poland, they would be ready and prepared. Not just to share your gospel, but to deal with the many different attacks of Satan. As they try to bring your word, Satan will work against them. That happens anytime we, your children, try to share your word. And Father, we pray that you would bolster not only us, but especially the Tunnell family. We pray for Cassia and her pregnancy, that that would go well. We praise you for this child and pray that they would never know a day when they didn't trust you as their Lord. Father, having prayed for leaders and missionaries, we now think about our own lives, the places where you have planted us, the places where you have put us as your people. We think about where we live, work, study, and play. How you have given us each one of these spheres in our lives, and you have placed us there amongst others who both know you and don't know you. We pray that we would build up brothers and sisters in Christ. That we will be an encouragement for one another, praying for them and sharing with them. And Father, those who don't know you, we pray that we would also be an example of Christ-likeness. That we would be humble and loving. That we would show them what it means to have hope. A hope that doesn't go away. A hope that doesn't tarnish. A hope that can't be taken by anything. Father, this week we think specifically about the places that you have placed us where we play. Whether that's on the ball field or the gym, whether it's the restaurant that we frequent or the store where we know the cashiers and the stock people. Father, you have given us these relationships 
across the spheres where we enjoy our free time. And we pray that you would help us not just to check out during those times, but to be observant of those around us, whether they be teammates on our teams or waiters and waitresses taking our order or the people who are working wherever we're at. Give us an eye towards your glory and your gospel. Help us to pray for them, to encourage them, and to share with them your love. Father, bring those people to mind regularly that we might start praying for them and looking for opportunities to share with them your glorious hope. You have placed us in these places. You have planted us like trees. We pray that the fruit of the gospel would be made manifest and that those people would not just see us being Christ-like, but would partake of your word and would become our brothers and sisters. And Father, in order to do this, we pray that you would continue to work in our own lives. We pray that you would instill in our hearts a love and a passion for you. So many people around us are asking, what is the meaning of life? We ask it as a joke. We ask it uh, as, as a puzzle. And yet you so clearly in your word tell us exactly what it is. It's to glorify you, Lord, and enjoy you forever. So help us to glorify you. Help us to glorify you in the way that we live, in the words that we say, in the thoughts that we think, in the ways that we spend our time and our treasure and our talents. May all of those glorify you. And not only that, Father, but we pray that we would enjoy you. You are not a cruel taskmaster that we must endure so that we can get a reward. You are a Father who deeply loves us. And we pray that you would grow that in our lives. Let us glorify you every minute of every day and enjoy you, not just here on this earth, but for all eternity as we spend it with you. What a glorious promise you've given us. Knowing how incapable we are and showing us how incapable we are of saving ourselves, you sent Jesus you sent him to be an example of what life should look like, to obey all the commands that we break every single day, and then to willingly suffer and die the things that we deserve. Not just as a model of suffering, but he suffered and died taking our sins on his own shoulders. But the story doesn't end with his death. It begins with his resurrection, where we see him being raised from the grave, and we see that the promises that you have made, the covenants that you have made in your word from the beginning of time are true. You always have kept them, you are keeping them, and you will keep them. So Father, help us. Help us to remember that. Help us to trust in Jesus as our only source of salvation. Help us to realize when we're trying to add our own works to Jesus and just trust in Christ, who lived and died and rose again for us. What a glorious good news that is, Father. And we do pray that you would help us to grow in grace, grow in glorifying you and enjoying you forever. Finally, Father, we bring to you our burdens, the things that lay heavy on our hearts. We pray for those who are sick and suffering, whether it be from an illness or an ailment. We pray that you would be with them, that you would remind them of your sovereignty no matter how difficult things get. Remind them that as your sons and daughters, you are with them. That you created them. That you know every cell in their body. You know exactly what they are going through and they are not alone. Be with them. 
But not only them, Father, we pray that you would be with us as we minister to those who are sick and suffering, as we diligently pray for them, as we look for ways to serve them. Help us to show Christ-like love. And Father, we think not only of those who are suffering, but also of those who are rejoicing in the ways that you have healed them, in the ways that you have brought to fruition your promises. And we think particularly today, Father, of those who are pregnant. As we've already rejoiced in Cassia's pregnancy, we pray that for all those who are pregnant, you would continue to grow mother and child. We pray that that baby would be born well. There would be no complications, but most importantly, Father, we pray that no matter what happens, there would never be a day when they don't know you as their Lord and Savior. We make promises every time these babies are born and brought before us to care for them. So, Father, help us to begin caring for them through pregnancies and to continue through infant toddler, young children, teenagers, and beyond. We thank you for all that you've given us. And thank you most of all for Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. We are looking at the book of Mark. Today we are going to be in Mark chapter 10. You can find this on page 846 in the Blue Pew Bible and 1006 in the Red Pew Bible in front of you. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of a few things. Number one, today is open registration for Camp Caruso. So if you are, um, if you know people or if you're participating or if you have nothing to do with it, we would appreciate your prayers. Whatever the case may be, we pray for registration today. We pray for the staff as they prepare, and we pray that you would diligently pray for them as well. This is an opportunity for us to share the love of Christ over the course of the summer. Also, if you have children ages 5 to 5th grade, we have Crusoe Kids Zone out the back door there. Uh, this year in Crusoe Kids Zone, in the next many years, they're going through material where they will talk about the overview of Scripture from beginning to end, where we see the glory of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how His promises come to fruition. Parents, I would highly encourage you to, over lunch, ask questions. What did they learn? What did they talk about today? And finally, as you are turning to Mark 10, I want to remind you that we have these cards that we have made up, these cards that give all the information that people need to know for the church, the information times and things like that. I want to challenge and encourage you to use these as a tool for the people that you're praying for, to invite them to church. It's an easy way not just to invite them and make sure that you don't forget anything, but for them to take it home and put it on the fridge and remember that you have invited them to church I think that we each ought to figure out some kind of goal, whether it's hand out one a week or hand out one a month, whatever the case may be, so that we're constantly thinking about people that we can invite to church, people that we want to be praying for, people that we want to see drawn into God's presence, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your fellow students or teammates on sports teams. Use the card as an opportunity to invite people to worship. Once you have gotten to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 52, please stand for the reading of God's Word. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who, were, who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind, said, blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Father, we thank you for this text. We pray that you would help us not only to understand it, but to hide the truths in our hearts. We pray that we would comprehend the ways that you are working through Jesus in this time, that we would hide in our hearts the gospel that Jesus keeps coming back to, and that we would work out with our hands the humility and servanthood that Christ calls us to. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we continue in Mark chapter 10, we always begin by saying, Jesus is... Oh, look at that hesitation. I was reminded this week that we say context is... 
King every week because we're talking about how to read the Bible, but we can't forget that above all things, Jesus is King. So now every time you say context is King, say Jesus is King over context, but as we're reading, context is King. Context is king means that anytime we read the scripture, we need to understand what it is that we're reading. Who's the author? What are they writing about? Who are they writing to? What was the setting? And so as we look at Mark, we continue that Mark is the shortest synoptic gospel. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, excuse me, that tell the story of the life of Jesus. And Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have very similar stories, so we call those the synoptic gospels, and Mark is the shortest. It was written by John Mark from Peter's Witness, and it was written primarily to Gentile Christians. That means men and women who didn't have the Jewish history and wouldn't understand all the things that the Old Testament are pointing forward to about Jesus. In fact, it was written so that a Roman soldier could understand what was going on. And in the book of Mark, we have some key themes that we see. These aren't the only ones by any mean, but these are some of them. We see the sonship of Jesus Christ how he is the Son of God. We've already heard God say twice, this is my Son. One time he said, in whom I am pleased. One time he said, listen to him. Not only that, but we see the authority of Jesus. Jesus does these great things. He heals and he controls nature and he casts out demons. That's not why he came. He came to preach the gospel. But those things all show that he has the authority to speak the truth to the people. And finally, he came to bring that message, that gospel of Jesus. Speaking of that gospel, we've also been using the imagery of kintsugi pottery. And the idea behind this is it's a Japanese art form where broken bowls and plates are put back together. And instead of trying to make them look like they did when they were new, the breaks are accented. And we use this because this is what our life is like. We are broken, sinful people. And without something fixing us, we are useless. We can't be used. When you shatter a bowl into a hundred pieces, you can't put water in it anymore. It won't hold it. But through the gospel, through faith in Christ, we can be made whole again to achieve that for which we were designed. And so these bowls, these plates remind us that we, by believing in Christ, have been made whole again and can achieve the goals for which he has set for us. We can spread his gospel. We can worship him. We can know him. And so we use this imagery to remind us, as broken people, we are saved and fixed and have hope in Jesus. And in the last few chapters, going all the way back to chapter 8, starting in verse 22, we've been looking at Christ predicting his own death. He's done this twice already, and today we're going to see that third prediction. And each time he does that, he follows it with instructions. So we kind of see these groupings of Jesus saying, I am going to die and raise again. And then he starts to teach them how to be disciples, how to live in light of his death and resurrection. And today, we're going to look at three different sections and we're going to see different types of sin and how Jesus is trying to help us understand what those sins are and how to get out from under them. We're going to look at idolatry, arrogance, and pride. Idolatry, arrogance, and pride. So let's start by looking at idolatry. <clears throat> this is in verses 17 through 31. This is a well-known story. Many people often call it the story of the rich young ruler, a, a young man who is wealthy, comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him not to call him good because only God is good. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm kind of like, what's going on here? Jesus is God. Jesus knows he's God. Why is he saying don't call me good? Because only God is good when he knows that he's God. Christ is God, but the rich young ruler doesn't recognize that. And so Jesus is trying to help him understand that only God is good. And until or unless the rich young ruler recognizes that Jesus is God, he should not call Jesus good. And so now the rich young ruler asks this question, what must I do? do 
to inherit eternal life? What is the focus of that question? The focus of that question is himself and his actions. Now, we can't fault the rich young ruler too much. Because this likely stems from the Pharisaical teachings. They, they would teach that you are in fellowship with God based on how good you are. Remember, every time we see them, they're challenging Jesus on actions, on doing, on how he is breaking or keeping some law, some action. And so it's not necessarily the rich young ruler's fault that he's confused in this way. It's likely because of the way that he was taught. But when we look at verses 17, 21, and 23, we see that Jesus, for him, all of those things are together. Inheriting eternal life, following Jesus, and entering into the kingdom are all closely related topics. And when we look at those, we don't see that he says you have to do these things. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? And at first, it seems like Jesus is agreeing with him, is, is saying, oh, okay, well, you do these things. It seems like he's saying that. But we know from chapter 9, verse 43, 45, 47, and chapter 10, verse 15, that that is not the case. Mark is not trying to change what he's already said and say, yep, Jesus said, if you just do these, you're saved. Instead, He's trying to emphasize to the rich young ruler that it is a gift, that there is nothing that he can do. Entry into God's kingdom, eternal life are gifts of God that cannot be gained by deeds or by works. And it's interesting because we're going to see in the response from this rich young ruler that he is deceived. He believes that he has kept these commandments. He says, I have kept all these commandments from my youth. That's not true. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's not true. I don't even know the guy. He died a long time ago. But we do know through Jesus' teaching, we do know through things like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about how, you know, yes, the law says this, but it's not just that action that is sin, it's the heart behind that. So if you don't actually stab somebody till they bleed out, but you are angry at them in your heart, you have still committed that sin. And so the rich young ruler believes he's kept the commandments because he's been taught that deeds are what save you. Now, this isn't unusual either. I mean, think about Paul in, in Philippians. Paul is trying to talk about righteousness and how you have to be righteous through your faith in Christ. And he goes on and he lists his pedigree. In the middle of chapter 3, or close to the beginning, he says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else think he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says that before he had faith, he too considered himself blameless. He too considered himself perfect in the eyes of the law. But Christ is trying to point out to this young man that he is not blameless. Christ is trying to show him the inability of him to achieve this eternal life on his own. And I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't do this in a rough or a rude way. Our response to somebody that would come up to us today and be like, hey, tell me about Jesus. You say, well, you know, part of being a Christian is making sure that you, you know, don't do these things and do these things. And they're like, yep, I've done that all. I think our natural reaction would be to scoff, to be like, yeah, yeah I don't think you understand what's going on here. But instead of scoffing at the man's misunderstanding, Jesus points him to God. And the text even says that he loved him. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's not Jesus getting ready to bring the hammer down and tell that guy how wrong he was, said this. It's Jesus looked at him and loved him. And because he loved him, he told him, this is what you need to do. 
When Jesus talks about having a lack, as he does in verse 21, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. This phrase, lack, often means a deep need or a serious lack. And so Jesus says, you think you've got it all, but you don't. You are deeply lacking. The man thinks he lacks for nothing. The man thinks he has done everything. But Jesus says, you lack. Now, I want us to clarify here. Jesus is not adding an extra commandment. This is not the 11th commandment. Sell all your things, give it to the poor, follow Jesus. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying your heart, your idol, the thing that is keeping you, rich young ruler, from eternal life is your money. So if you really want the eternal life that comes through faith in me, you need to let go of that idol. Sell everything. Don't hold on to anything. Give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Jesus isn't adding a new commandment. He's trying to help the man see his idolatry and his love of money. It's interesting because the rich young ruler thinks he's kept all the commandments and yet his idolatry for money breaks the first three commandments instantly breaks the first three commandments because he has replaced God with his money. He is not willing to let go of his money and trust in God. Instead of focusing on the treasures in heaven, the eternal life that he thinks he's asking for, he's too focused on the treasures on earth, his earthly wealth. And so Jesus looks at him and loves him and calls him and us to give up everything that is obstructing his trust in God. For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. He wasn't willing to give that up. Whether it's because it was his identity or his security or whatever the case may be, his idol was his wealth. And Jesus says, you have to give this up if you want eternal life. And so as we read this, we have to ask ourselves, what is the idol we are chasing? What is the thing we are not willing to give up? Jesus says, let go of anything and everything that separates you from dependence on God alone. And what's the response of the rich young ruler? He's despondent. He's despondent, not because this is impossible to do, but because he won't do it. He is not willing to give up his idol. It is too rooted in his heart. Jesus, loving him, tells him to give up his idol, but he's unwilling. And so the rich young ruler walks away. He goes away. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And it's interesting because that's not the end of it. It's not just this lesson on idolatry. Now Jesus turns to his disciples and lovingly cares for them. We know that he does this because he uses the phrase children. He's trying to teach them about this very concept that he has just taught the rich young ruler about. Why does he feel the need to teach them? Well, he feels the need to teach them because they also have wrong perspectives on money. We see in the scripture they're both amazed and they're puzzled. They don't understand why God would say this. And so Jesus tells them and then tells them again saying, children. Why are they puzzled? They're puzzled because in that time, in that context... Wealth was thought to be a blessing of God. And it is. But wealth cannot be our idol replacing God. Just because wealth was a blessing of God, as we saw in the Old Testament, you think about the book of Job, all the things that he had. You think about Abraham, all the things that he had. There was wealth in the Old Testament, but there were also warnings not to let that wealth get out of hand. Well, that didn't work. Deuteronomy 7, 8, verses 17 and 18, uh, talks about this. I had it marked, but then my bookmark came out. Sorry. 
Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 and 18, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. Deuteronomy says, It's not you who got wealth. It is God who gave it to you. We move forward. Psalm 49, verse 6 says this, 5 and 6. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. The author of this psalm is saying, look at these people, these people who are against me. Look at what they're doing. So these are negative actions. He's saying they're boasting and trusting in their wealth. And so not only is this a warning, but it is something to say, don't be like this. Fast forward, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. You're given that wealth to honor the Lord, not for yourself. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And so, yes, wealth can be a sign of God's blessings, but the Bible repeatedly reminds us that it's also a trap. It cannot be what we pursue alone. It cannot be what we trust in. Because when we trust in riches, it stops us from trusting in God. We've all heard it. You cannot love God and money. Loving money, trusting in riches, is idolatry. Are we trusting in anything besides God for our happiness? Maybe for you it's not money. Maybe it's something else. But is there anything that you are putting at the throne of your heart that you are trusting in over God that if you were asked to give it up right now completely and utterly would crush you like it crushed the rich young ruler? Jesus taught the rich young ruler that he had to trust in Jesus alone. And then he turns to his disciples and says, you have to trust in me alone. Yes, wealth can be a blessing from the Lord, but it cannot replace the Lord in our hearts. And that is the danger. And he goes on to give this phrase uh, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Commentator Keener says that this phrase, camel through the eye of a needle, was a well-known hyperbole at the time of Christ that meant something impossible. I, I have heard it, you know, there's this, this needle gate and it's really hard for the camel to get through and the wall in Jerusalem. I don't think that's it. Who knows? It may be. The point is, this is a well-known hyperbole. Christ is saying it is nearly impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God because it's so easy to trust that wealth instead of God. And then in verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Christ is redirecting their focus away from this discussion of money and to the power that they need to trust instead of money. God. God can transform the hardest of hearts. God can remove our idols. God can help us trust him and him alone. Jesus teaches the rich young ruler. Jesus teaches the disciples. And then Jesus points the disciples to the Lord. God is the one who can change them. Now, as is becoming the case, the disciples are a little slow on the uptake. And so Peter is like, whoa, 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 hang on. Now remember, Peter is often represented as saying something, but he was kind of the spokesman for the disciples. So as the spokesman, he's probably seeking reassurance from Christ when he talks about his sacrifice in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He's like, wait, 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 what about us? We've left everything. Are we good? Are we, are, 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 is there something wrong with us? 
And Jesus continues not only to teach them here, but all throughout the rest of his life, and even after his resurrection, he sharpens them as disciples, showing them their hard hearts and helping them to soften them towards God. This is a long-term project on Jesus' behalf of maturing the disciples so that they can make disciples. I often say, you know, we read things like this and Jesus is so clear to us and he's so obvious in the way that he says things and then the disciples like totally don't get it. It's like they're speaking another language. And we're always like, ah, come on! But then we realize, oh wait, I did that this morning. Oh, I did the same thing. I didn't listen to the Lord. I know he's true. I know I have to trust him. And yet I did X, Y, and Z, which is the same thing the disciples do. And so part of our process as believers is this long-term discipleship through the word, continuing to shape us, continuing to mature us, continuing to draw us to the Lord. Jesus doesn't give the disciples a formula. If you leave 50 things, then you'll be saved. If you just do this thing, then you'll be saved. He's not looking to give them a formula. Instead, he's trying to show them how to shape their hearts. He's trying to show them how to trust in the Lord. He's trying to show them how to leave the world behind for the sake of of the gospel. So in 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. And then look at verse 30. Pay close attention to what Jesus promises in verse 30. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution. Ooh, boy, don't we wish those two words weren't in there. Jesus is promising that we will receive blessings when we pursue him. It's likely, based on the context, that as he talks about houses and mothers and brothers and sisters, he's saying, look, you have gained a covenant family. Maybe you gave up your individual family, but you've gained a covenant family. Those who love you, those who care for you, those who provide for you and will show you the things that you need to know. Not just that, but if you have a need, they'll provide for you. Look at Acts 2, 42-47, and we see how anyone in the church that had a need was provided for by other members of the church. And so Jesus is saying, you will be provided for. But it won't just be cakes and rainbows. The life of a disciple of Christ includes persecution. Because after all, what are we doing? We're throwing off the shackles of the world. We're pushing away the temptations of Satan. And we're pursuing the Lord. And that's the last thing Satan wants us to do. He wants us to distract us in any way we can to come back. And so when we pursue the Lord, Satan is going to do everything he can to draw us back. Whether that's persecution from people that we know, or whether it's the loss of things, whatever it may be. Jesus says, when you follow me, you will be provided for. It may not be to the amount that you desire. It may not be in the way that you desire. But you will be provided for. But not only that, but you will also have persecution. Not the kind of promise that we look for, but the kind of promise that is comforting. When Jesus promises that we will be persecuted, when persecution comes around, we're not surprised. I don't know about you, but if somebody said, yeah, things are going to be great. And then hard things come along, and you're like, I thought you said things were going to be hard. Oh, yeah, there'll be hard things, too. We kind of get mad at that person, right? Like, you should have told me that. And Jesus is up front. He's saying, following me will lead to persecution. Jesus is very different from all the people of his time who were pushing deeds to show your salvation and all the false gospels of our time the prosperity gospels that are saying, if you just name it, you can have it. If you just trust in God, you will get wealth. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is encouraging sacrificial following and fellowship with God. He's encouraging us to put our idols away, 
to make sure that anything that is in the throne of our hearts besides God is pushed out. And instead, to trust in the Lord, the hope and the peace that the Lord brings. Pursue God, not idols. So in verses 17 through 31, we see how idolatry plays into the life of the disciple and what Jesus is teaching us about idolatry. So now that we've looked at idolatry, let's look at arrogance. And don't worry, not the, the rest of them aren't that long. So you're, you're not going to be here until 3 in the afternoon. But let's look at arrogance. In verses 32 through 35, or 45, we see this story of Jesus foretelling his death for a third time. And the result that comes out of that is arrogance on behalf of the disciples. So Jesus comes before them as he's teaching them, and he tells them, Look, my death is imminent. We are walking to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. Not only that, but I'm going to die and be raised again. And so he's telling them that. He's speaking of his imminent death, and they both fear and are in amazement of what he is saying. Why? Because when they think about Messiah, what do they think about? We've said this over and over and over again. The disciples thought of what a Messiah was, was a political conqueror who would come in and push out the Romans. And give the land back to the people of God. And so they're thinking, Jesus is the Messiah. He said it himself. So he must be the one that's going to push the Romans out. So here we go. And then he starts to say, I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again from the grave. And they're still confused. Despite him talking about this already twice. Despite this being the third time that he tells them this. That he tells them, I was not sent for a political revolt. I was sent to suffer and atone for your sin. I was sent to save you from alienation to God. I was sent to draw you into his presence. This mission of Christ, much more so than the political one, has lasting personal and societal consequences. If Jesus had gone into Israel and just been a military conqueror and pushed out all the Romans, they get their land for what, a generation? Maybe? Instead, he comes in and lives the life we were supposed to live and dies on our behalf so that he affects not only the people living at his time, but all the people living until he comes back. And he brings them hope. So as Jesus talks about his death, he knows there's going to be a double betrayal. First, he'll be delivered to the Jewish leaders, and they'll judge him, and then they'll hand him over to the Gentile leaders so that he is going to die. So Jesus tells them this. This is what's happening. This is how it's going to happen. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be flogged. And what's the next thing that comes out of the disciples' mouths? Yeah, 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 that's great. Do you think that you could put us at your right and left hands? That'd be great. James and John, who are already, by the way, in his inner circle, are competing for position next to Christ because they're still thinking of him as the conquering king. So Jesus says, I did not come for political revolt. I came to save your souls. And they're like, okay, so when the political revolt happens, this would be really great if one of us could sit here and the other could sit here. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus, I'm like, what did I just say? They're not listening at all to what he's saying and instead want to sit on his right hand and his left hand as Jesus, the political ruler, rules over Jerusalem after having pushed out the Romans. It's just like, come on! So they say, hey, Jesus, can you give us something? Not only do they say, can you give us something, but they say, hey, we want you to give us whatever we ask. It's kind of like the kid saying, whatever I say, say yes to the next question I ask, okay? That's, that feels like a trap to me. And Jesus go ahead and he indulges them. He asks them what they want. But when they tell him that they want to sit on his right and left hand as he is the Messiah, he tells them they can't do what it takes. 
Now they, again, thinking politically, he's thinking as a Messiah, the true Messiah. He uses the metaphors of the cup that I'm going to drink and the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. These are metaphors that come from the Old Testament. These are metaphors that, po- excuse me, that point to severe but temporary just, uh, judgment of God. We see this phrase, the cup that I will drink in Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25. Judgment comes initially in those passages to Jerusalem before it passes on to the other nations, those that are oppressing Israel. And then we see this phrase of baptism in Job 22, which again, Jesus is saying, you can't do what I'm going to do because you don't understand what it is that I'm doing. I am about to receive judgment upon your behalf, the judgment of God. Not only that, but he will be the first one to drink of that cup. We see that in Luke chapter 12. By drinking of that cup, by having that baptism, Jesus protects us, his followers, who will also drink and be baptized after him, but because he did it first, because he took that judgment on our behalf, our judgment instead is to sharpen and to purify us. That's what the gospel is saying. Someone has to die for our sins, and we can't do it. We're not good enough. We don't have enough good works, and we never will to atone for our sins. And so if it's up to us and us alone, we can't do it. So Jesus came and did what we can't do, lived that life that we could not live, and willingly died for us. That's what he's on his way to do. He's on his way to Jerusalem to willingly die for us. He's going to drink the cup of God's wrath, be baptized in fire, so that we will not have to face that judgment. There will be future glory. We've seen that in chapter 8, 38 already. We'll see it again in chapter 13, verse 26. But in order to get there, Christ has to suffer God's judgment on our behalf by dying for us. James and John are thinking politically. And so when he says, can you do what I'm about to do? They're like, sure, we can fight in battles next to you. We can stand next to you. But Jesus is speaking in a different way. Jesus is speaking of the sacrifice that he has to make for us. The wrath of God that he has to sustain for us. And they don't yet understand it. But they will get a taste of some of it. Not the full brunt, because Jesus takes that, but some of it. Now this conversation has been going on with Jesus, James, and John, and the other disciples overhear it, and they're indignant with James and John, probably rightfully so, and they're likely also jealous. But again, Jesus turns to them and says he begins to teach them in a loving way something radical. Instead of trying to teach them how to fight so that they can conquer, he tells them, if you want to be first, you will be last. You will become a slave to all. Servant leadership glorifies God. Not the kind of leadership that pushes out with sword. Servant leadership glorifies God. Service to others is a mark of a godly leader. So if these disciples want to be godly leaders, they need to serve others. And it begins with Jesus Christ's eternal reign, his glorification, begins with his service to us by dying for us, even though we deserve it. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. He is a substitute in our place. He atones for, he takes care of our sins. He serves us first by dying for our sins so that then we can serve others. Look with me at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This phrase ransom is Christ showing us that not only can we not reconcile ourselves, but that he is doing it for us. The sacrifice by Christ both begins and characterizes Christ's eternal rule. 
The disciples were arrogantly thinking of themselves, but Jesus teaches them about servant leadership. So we've looked at idolatry with the rich young ruler and how he put money at the throne of his heart instead of God. And we looked at the arrogance of the disciples and how they thought that they could do what Christ was going to do. Let's look at verses 46 through 52 and how the pride of the crowd is corrected by Christ. So Christ continues towards Jerusalem. He's marching towards his death. And the disciples and the crowd around him as he gets, um, as he gets to Jericho pridefully decide, hey, be quiet, Bartimaeus. You're a blind beggar. Jesus is way more important than you. Stop talking. Bartimaeus has cried out. He hears Jesus is coming, and he asks for help. But the crowd determines, and the disciples determine, hey, you, Jesus is too important for you. Just, just be quiet. And they try to shut him down. They believe and they determine of their own volition that Bartimaeus isn't worth Jesus' time. They think that he's just a beggar on the side of the road. Jesus has far more important things to do. Now it's interesting too, before we dive too deep into this, we've been talking about these three times that Jesus talks about his death and resurrection. And it began with him healing a blind man, and now it ends with him healing a blind man. In the text, we call that an inclusio. That means all three of these stories are brought together by putting these bookends of the healing of blind man on the ends. And so we see this whole section is important and one section together. So now let's get back to Bartimaeus. Christ hears Bartimaeus call out. And instead of doing what the crowd says, contrary to the way the crowd leans, he listens to Bartimaeus. And it's really interesting because Jesus calls out to Bartimaeus and the crowd goes from, shh, leave him alone, to, oh, hey, we're excited. He's going he's gonna to listen to you. They totally shift and give excited instructions to Bartimaeus. They say, take heart, which is be encouraged. Get up. Jesus is calling you. It's interesting to me because the crowd has determined that Bartimaeus isn't worthy of Jesus' time. And as I read that, the way that they pridefully determined on their own, with their own marks and their own ways of thinking, that Bartimaeus wasn't worth Jesus' time, I wondered how many times I have not shared the gospel because I just assumed someone would not respond. Or they didn't look to me like someone who was worthy of the gospel. And and I'm, I'm ashamed to say that that is a reality because the scriptures tell us that all are worthy of the gospel. Who was created in God's image? Only Americans? No, that is not what the text says. All of us are created in God's image. And Jesus shows his love for all people, those who can benefit him financially and those who are destitute and need him desperately. He stops on the way to Jerusalem to care for an outcast. Bartimaeus responds to Jesus' call after they say, Jesus is calling for you. He leaps up and leaves all of his possessions behind. Notice the big list, his cloak. But for a poor beggar, that's all he had. That was his home, that was his bed, that was his seat. And unlike the rich young ruler who wasn't willing to sell anything, Bartimaeus leaves everything to pursue Jesus. Unlike the rich young ruler who was so wrapped up in his possessions, Bartimaeus leaves everything behind to jump up and leap to Christ. And Jesus gives him the chance to express his need and to express his trust in Christ. And Bartimaeus expresses a very simple trust in Christ's power and healing, and Christ says, your faith has restored you. Jesus restores Bartimaeus with the power of his word. The phrase in Greek is, you trusted that I could help you. And so rather than listening to the prideful 
crowd, the prideful disciples who were trying to determine who was worthy of Jesus' time. Jesus heals Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus has faith. So as we look at these examples of idolatry, arrogance, and pride, and as we look at Jesus' teachings, the questions we have to ask are, how do we respond? How do we respond to the story of the rich young ruler? Well, we ask ourselves questions. Is there anything that you would not be willing to give up? If I went into your house and, and could point to anything, or your garage, or wherever you have things, and I could point to anything, is there anything that you are not willing to give up? If you did have to give everything up, would it cause an emotional turmoil within you because you trusted in those things, or those things provided you safety, or those things were things that you were trusting in for comfort? What is your idol? You see, Jesus tells the rich young ruler, Jesus tells the disciples, and Jesus tells us we have to be fighting against our sin and idolatry or it will be killing us and drawing us away from God. And so is there anything that you are trusting more than the Lord? And what are you doing about it? Do you have an accountability partner, somebody who is praying for you, who is asking you about your idols, about your temptations, about your sins, so that you can constantly be turning to God and away from the things of this world? Maybe it's money. Maybe it's the television. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's buying stuff. Maybe it's time with people. Whatever is on the throne of your heart that is not the Lord, you need to deal with it. Just like Jesus pointed to the rich young ruler and said, money is on the throne of your heart. Give it up so that you can follow God. And the rich young ruler didn't, but Bartimaeus did. What is it that we are clinging to like the rich young ruler? And then we move forward and see the arrogance of James and John who want to be recognized, want to be leaders, want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. And so the questions we ask from that is, are we serving other people or are we also fighting to be number one? Are we convinced that we can handle anything in our life without help because we're number one, because we're strong enough? Or do we intentionally seek for the good of others? Do we depend on God and seek to serve others to glorify Him? Or are we depending on ourselves, like James and John, trying to be the best? And finally, as we look at the pride of the disciples and the crowd who try and decide on Jesus' behalf that Bartimaeus isn't important enough, the questions we have to ask ourselves is, are how do we treat people who are different from us? It's interesting because the youth group today is going to be talking about diversity and what the scriptures say about diversity. And one of the things that the author points out in that chapter is that Jesus was brown and Jewish and Middle Eastern. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen so many artworks where Jesus looks like a blonde, long-haired, blue-eyed, hippie surfer dude, that if I'm not careful, that's what my mind goes to. And if that's what my mind goes to, that looks enough like me that I can push others away. But that's not what Jesus looked like at all. And so how do I treat people who are different from me? Because Jesus was different from me. And not just that, but have you ever not shared the gospel because you assume that someone wouldn't listen? You make the determination on their behalf. Are you uncomfortable when the people around you are not like you? Why don't you share the gospel more? What is holding you back? Jesus paused his journey, his walk to the cross, to Jerusalem, to care for the least of these. What is holding us back? to care for those around us. And I'll tell you, it's likely pride and or shame. We're prideful because we think we're better than other people and they don't need what we have, or we're ashamed because we don't want people to reject us. We don't trust in our relationship with Christ as the core of who we are. We think it's up to us 
and we don't want to fail. Everything that Jesus talked about today, idolatry, arrogance, and pride, boils down to our hearts. Do we have proud, autonomous, idol-filled, hard hearts? Or are we surrendering to Christ's call to be like him? a God-honoring servant leader who values all people? That's the question we have to ask. Do we have proud, autonomous, idol-filled, hard hearts? Or are we surrendering to Christ's call to be like him, God-honoring servant leader who values all God's people? That's the question we have to ask ourselves as we close out this section of text that's the question that we should ask every day. Are we pursuing Christ or are we pursuing our idols? Let's pray. Father, it's hard for us to evaluate ourselves. It's hard for us to think about the ways that we are idolatrous, that we are arrogant, that we are prideful. We don't want to think about those things because we don't want to be seen as sinners or to call ourselves sinners. And yet, Father, we fall into every one of those categories. We do have idols in our heart. As John Calvin said, our heart is an idol-making factory. We do have arrogance in our heart. We do believe that we are better than others. We do have pride in our heart. We determine on behalf of others whether or not you love them or whether they're worthy of your gospel. And Father, we pray that you would help us in each one of these areas to become more and more like you. To break down our proud, autonomous, idol-filled, hard hearts and to replace them with God-honoring, servant-leader hearts that value you and all people. In Jesus' precious, holy, and glorious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.